Welcome to How We Got There. I am your host, Mike Davis, founder of Go-To-Market Guides. I interview thought leaders and founders in the Salesforce ecosystem to help ISVs learn new things to try and mistakes to avoid. This episode of How We Got There is brought to you by ISB App. ISB App is used by leading Salesforce ISVs and OEMs as the central toolbox to reduce churn, increase renewals, identify upsell potential, and close more deals. ISB App is the only plug and play solution for the AppExchange App Analytics API and provides deep product insights. The setup is easy and takes less than five minutes. Visit ISBapp.com, that's I-S-B-A-P-P.com com to learn how you can take advantage of usage data in your app today. All right, I am here with Ian Gotts. He is the founder and CEO of Elements Cloud, Elements.cloud. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So I guess tell us a little bit about how you found your way into the Salesforce ecosystem and ultimately end up at, at what Elements.cloud does. I'm afraid I need to take you back a long way then. It was nine, uh, 1999, 2000. We were using Axe. That was the previous company I was running. We needed a CRM system, not that it was called CRM then. And we had teams all over the world and we needed a, a way of making sure they all had a, a constant record of, of customers. And the cloud was being invented. And again, it wasn't called the cloud then. So we bought Salesforce as a customer. There were two people in the London office who sold it to me. They were in actually a Regis office. And we started customizing and building it. And we ran the entire company on Salesforce. We built 285 custom objects because the app exchange didn't exist. I was one of three customers who spoke at the first UK event. So it was Mark, three customers and 120 people. So that was sort of, I don't know, London's Dreamforce event back in 2001, 2002. So we've been customers and Elements.cloud was uh, launched 2016. And we said, okay, we're going to build a business. The three founders, Richard, Adrian, and myself, had sold the previous company and said, we're going to build a company. What should we do? And they said, look, let's focus on the Salesforce market. We know it really well. We know where... Uh, the challenges are because Salesforce is growing very quickly, moving into the enterprise space. We think there's some white space there around how do you understand your org? How do you drive around that implementation lifecycle? And that's what we went and built. So it's been a fantastic journey watching Salesforce grow. And I'm really pleased to have been both a customer and also now a partner. Oh, that's wonderful. Thanks for sharing. I recently came across, uh, I've been thinking about V2 Moms a lot recently, and you mentioned that it wasn't called CRM back then. Uh, the first V2 Mom is out there public from Salesforce back, I think it was in 99, actually. And uh, like Mark's vision was Salesforce automation was all he could see at that point. And I just think that's like, I don't know, that it, not to be too corny, but I uh, the, like that's kind of cute. It's endearing that he couldn't, like his vision couldn't even and extend beyond that. So I guess, uh, Ian, tell us a little bit about Elements.cloud and how you help your customers. So we believe that you can't manage an org if you don't understand it. So we are the change intelligence platform for Salesforce. What that means is uh, we pull all the metadata out, build a metadata dictionary, we build all the dependency trees, the impact analysis. So very quickly, a couple of minutes to set it up. A couple of hours later, we've indexed your entire org and you can suddenly understand what you've built, what you've configured, where the risks are. But then we've put all the other documentation around it. So how do you manage change, requirements, feedback, 
process maps, uh, user stories. So we do all the bits that you need at the front end before you start building, and then we'll hand off to a DevOps player. So we've got integrations with people like Capado. We work with Gearset. We're building an integration with DevOps Center. So we're very clear about our lane. We are everything from I've got a business goal, an idea, a requirement, all the way through to let's start building. And that's that's really what the customers are asking us for. How quickly can you tell me what I've built so I can understand how to make changes more quickly without breaking anything? So, And ultimately, if a platform owner says, I want to get better value out of Salesforce, how do I become more agile? You need to understand your org better so you can manage it better. Nice. And just to double click on something, that's interesting. You found uh, success in going to market with other ISVs in the ecosystem, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I don't know how much history you remember or what's going well or any sort of recommendations you would have for folks that are seeing the same ISV in customer after customer and, and how to actually get that moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is you need to understand who the complementary partners are. And quite often you find that even if they're a complementary partner, they they still have some overlap with what you do. And you need to focus on how you can both work together rather than saying, well, my feature is better than your feature. Don't worry about the overlaps. Worry about actually is, is there a genuine complementary offering? That's the first thing. The second thing is do not expect them to give you customers and don't expect you to give them customers. We're all very focused on our customers. I'm very happy to work with other partners and say, look, the customer will gain if we both work there. But it all gets really messy if you start going, oh, well, I'll give you 10% of revenue if you do this, or I'll give you a... All of that sort of trying to share share revenue splits makes life very complicated, particularly in an ecosystem where companies are growing fast, they're growing at different rates, companies are getting acquired. I I try and keep things simple. I'm a bear of a small brain. Like, how do I keep this simple? These companies we work with well, I'll do joint marketing, but we're not doing any referral shares or trying to do anything complicated in terms of of, of revenue shares or joint go-to-sales type uh, motions. I think it's a lot simpler if you say, we all have a a proposition which the customer needs, let's make sure that the the, the story is joined up correctly from a marketing perspective. Keep it simple. Really good advice. In building your company, and what are you most proud of? Essentially, I think I'm most proud of of the culture we built. The fact that we've got people who come and join us who genuinely want to come to a company and give their best and are able to do that. I mean, the last company that the three of us built was a company called Nimbus Partners. We grew it to about 120 people. I know when people asked if it had been acquired, people came back and said, that's the company, best company I ever worked for. And some of them have come back to work for us again. Actually, I was talking to our COO yesterday, and he said one of the team, fairly junior member, joined going, I'll, I'll work for you for six months, but I, I need to go, I, I want to go and be a consultant, was offered a job with a top four consulting firm. And he actually said, Do you know what? I really enjoy working at Elements. I don't want to take that job. I know it's more money, but actually I've got, a, I've got a space to grow here. I'm around people I enjoy working with. And we've all got to be somewhere. We've all got to be at work somewhere, and we need to find the best place to do that. Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing is building a culture. And a, a book I'd recommend, there's a book about Netflix and the way they run their business, about hiring top talent and then trusting them to, to use their judgment 
and giving them the context about what they need to do rather than micromanaging them. I think that's what we're all striving to be, which is be trusted to get on the stuff and actually be able to do what they're good at and then be around other people who inspire you to be better. Love that book. Yeah, they talk about talent dense environments there and how it just creates this like magnetism for for other top talent. Love it. On the flip side of that, what's what's been a big mistake? What's been a mistake for you along the way? Uh, okay, I'll point at point a big mistake we made in the days of Nimbus. So bear in mind, Nimbus was the previous company we ran. We were a process mapping product. We were we were doing a lot of what we do, what Elements does for Salesforce, we were doing that for SAP. And Accenture said, we will make you the global standard, but we, but we don't want to pay you for any licenses. And at the time, the cloud didn't exist. It was very difficult managing that licensing. And we couldn't get our head around how we could make it available to the Accenture consultants. And they weren't just going to use it free at every single client. And we said no. And... Yeah, that that was a, that probably was the largest mistake mistake we made in Nimbus. The the impact that an Accenture could have had 10, 15 years ago was huge. We've we've corrected that. We actually have a consulting license in Elements. If you're an independent consultant, five hundred dollar license will enable you to use Elements on every single customer. Uh, but obviously now we have the cloud, so therefore the whole licensing model is way way easier to manage now. But again. Corrected that mistake. I'm not going to make that again. I'm sure we'll make lots of other mistakes, but I, I hope that uh, we only make big mistakes once and we learn from them. Now, Elements.Cloud is, I mean, anytime I think of demo jams, I think of three ISVs and y'all are definitely one of the three because you you tend to win them. I guess so what makes for a good demo jam in your experience? Well, I think the first thing is that we've won every single demo jam. <laughs> And you go, but again, you've got to understand what the criteria for winning are. Okay, when, when I um, when I think about a demo jam, it's not about do I walk away with a trophy. Okay, it's about how many people in the audience genuinely understood the elements proposition and went, okay, maybe I can't afford it now. Maybe I'm not right, but I understand what that is. I think quite often you can construct a demo jam that is amusing, entertaining, very clever, talented. You win. But everyone in the audience, 350 people, 200 people, however many people in the audience, don't actually get what you do. They go, you're amazing, you won, but actually didn't get the core message. So if you think about winning, I can still remember in Denver, did the demo jam. I think we won, not in terms of we won the trophy. But as I walked off stage, two people handed me their business card and said, please invoice us for licenses. That's what winning is, where it's crisp enough so somebody goes, I understand what you do. I understand the value proposition. I know I need it. Let's get started. And at the end of the day, that is what matters. I'm curious, do you know offhand how many trophies y'all have won? Like actual trophies? I don't know. I was trying to work it out. Eight, nine, probably. Nice. I mean, own backup and Mowgli are the other two guys who are, who are winning demo jams all the time. It's a shame because we haven't been doing it for the last couple of years. It's a shame we've not been in person. I don't... I, there's something about a demo jam where you've got three minutes and sweaty palms and you're up there on stage. It's not the same when it's done remotely. So we need to get back to in-person. We'll go, we're going to be at I know DevOps Dreaming. We're going to be at Midwest Dreaming, Northeast. So we'll be getting back to, to genuine demo jams, which I'm excited about. Nice. And before we talk about the Dreaming events, I do want to ask you, uh, I'm giving you a magic wand here. 
um, other than putting them in person, because I'm not going to give you that that answer <laughs> after COVID. But what's one thing you would change about the existing format for these demo jams, if you could? I think they work well. I mean, it's three minutes. It's quick. I think a, a good way of getting the voting so that it's easy to do for the participants and it's and it's fair and consistent. It's hard to, to, to make it work. You go to some demo jams and it's who applauds loudest and, and therefore it becomes not lottery, but it, it isn't very, very practical. You get other, other demo jams where the voting suddenly spikes at the last minute and it's like, did everyone get from the company vote from home? And I, I think it's, it had, how do you end up with a, a fair answer at the end? If you, in terms of who actually wins the, who wins the, the prize is probably the thing that's easiest to fix with technology. But again, the, the people organizing these dreaming events have got a million other things they're doing and it's their passion project. So I'm not sure I'd use my magic wand. I, the demo jams are a great a great way of highlighting companies and I, I'm not sure I change anything. It's If you can't present your company and your product in three minutes, then you'll find out pretty quickly the demo jam. And now to get back to those dreaming events, your company sponsors a lot of those. I'm just curious, so why is that? And what, what kind of success have you seen from doing those? I think if you're a, a new ISV entering the ecosystem, so you've got a fairly young product, you think there's a, a, a value proposition. With all of us, you build something and you, it isn't till the customers really get hold of it and start spending money, you know whether you've really hit the mark. So I think dreaming events are a relatively low cost way of engaging with a lot of the ecosystem i mean if you have you sponsor say a sort of a, a world tour the, the new york world tour it's 15 30 or sixty thousand dollars or whatever the number is you can go to a, a dreaming event for significantly less and actually have a lot more in-depth conversations with the ecosystem who will tell you honestly where you need to take the product so we use the demo uh, sorry the dreaming event when we first launched we went to I mean, my view is let's support every single one. I think one year I did 95,000 miles on United, flying around the US and, and other places around the world to go and support these events. And that was invaluable. I was there on the stand with other people. We're talking to people. It helped set the direction for the product. We engaged so many people who are now evangelists. They've watched us grow They've asked for, for, for changes to the product or enhancements. They've seen those go in. And we've built a, a really good reputation. And that, that takes time and it takes face-to-face -face activity. And that's, that's what the dreaming events, I keep saying, yeah, yeah, that's what the dreaming events are really good at. <laughs> yeah, and you you brought something up there that I mean, actually, during the pandemic, I mean, we've been it's been a, a big void. But I mean, nothing in my career is more powerful when you're trying out a new message. So even if your company has new messaging or a new feature, and I hope you've had a new feature since March 2020, these dreaming events are a real low cost way to get a lot of at bats and to get immediate feedback. Talking to people at the booth about some new positioning or a new product or a new uh, feature that you've launched and then also listen to your colleagues pitch it. So, uh, man, it's been a long time since I've done an event, but you just reminded me that's such an invaluable aspect of it. Yeah, also, I think you need to be clear about what the market is. I mean, we have, as elements, our target market really is the platform owner. 
the platform owner understands that they need to get more value out of Salesforce, and therefore they are they've got the budget, and our, our pricing is up, is five percent of Salesforce spend. Uh, obviously, you can you can step up to that, but actually, that's that's the sort of level of revenue that people are spending with us. So it's it's the platform owner who cares about exploiting the power of Salesforce. You're not going to find very many platform owners at a dreaming. But in the early days when we were building the product, the pricing was at a point where an admin would go, I want one license. It worked really, really well. So that's also where I think you see new companies coming through the dreaming events and then some of the larger companies who who are now aiming at a, a slightly different market and no longer the sponsors. Now, the other thing about dreaming events is the other sponsors, that's where we built our relationships with the ISVs. That's where we built relationships with many of the consulting partners because they're standing around on the stands. So if you're working a dreaming event, don't go, okay, everyone's in session, so there's no one to talk to. I can look around the room and see there are 20 people to talk to or 40 people because there are all the other stands there. And that's where we built those relationships. And it, and it's building a relationship. It's not going, can I sell you my stuff? But it's having a conversation about, are they a future employee? Are they a future partner? Are they just a great mentor? There are lots of reasons to go and start those conversations. Yeah. And you bring up a point about the staffing, I guess, to get real tactical from your point of view to properly staff a booth at uh, a dreaming event. What's that look like for you? How many how many folks do you typically send and in what roles? That's an interesting question. First of all, if we're going to a dreaming event, I really want to make sure we are speaking and we're at the demo jam because that's really what's driving the interest and you can have a proper conversation. When it comes to how many people are on the booth, if you're going to have something like a Midwest Dreaming where there are seven, 800 people, it's probably three, three or four people would be there. If it's a smaller event, you can get away with two. You certainly, it's hard for fewer than two because if you're speaking at an event, uh, at a session, then someone needs to be on the, on the stand because people are going to come and walk past. But it's a great way of bringing new people up to speed because they, they're repeating the pitch like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 times. And again, it's a chance for them to hone their messaging, make sure they've got it right. So I think about one of our new employees, he was in the marketing team, came along with me to Northeast Dreaming. I was off winning the demo jam and he was then fielding questions from people. I was off presenting at a session, he was fielding questions. Bit of a baptism of fire, but he learned so much so quickly there. So think of it also as a bit of a training ground. Because the audience, they're really, really friendly. It's not like you're being in a lion's den. You're there with an ecosystem that is so supportive. Yeah, the two minimum two people is really uh, good advice, especially if you're participating. Because inevitably, after you get done presenting, you're going to get cornered by somebody who wants to talk to you. Like your example earlier, two people came up to you. And if you're not at the booth, uh, that's where people are going to go try to find you. So having at least that second person makes a ton of sense. In terms of um, budgeting... I was double. So if the if the sponsorship fee is five, I would probably expect it's going to cost ten to do it. As a rule of thumb, by the time you've added in flights and hotels and food and 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 all those other things, so it's very easy to go. Well, it's only five to to sponsor this. It's only three to sponsor this. You need to double that at least in terms of the budget you're expecting to spend. 
Yeah. And if you look back into last year or the last couple of years, whatever comes top of mind, what's your top producing lead source at your, at your business? People moving company. An example, someone said, okay, I've left my company. I've, I've arrived in the new company. Job one was find the coffee machine. Job two was order elements. And do you have any tips or tricks to share on how to operationalize that? I mean, when they come to you, that's easy. But have you, have you done anything to, to make sure they come to you? Well, the, what I mean is that it's an existing it's an existing customer who's then changed moved to another company. So they've sure they've realised that they 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 can't live without elements. The first job is make sure that when they they move to the new company, the first question they're going to ask is, "Okay, can you tell me about the org?" And everyone goes, "Well, no, not really. We've no idea." And the answer is, "Well, you've got elements. No, we haven't. Well, why not? We need elements." So job one is understand what's in the org, org discovery. So I, I don't. The, because the product works and because people use it all the time when, they're, when they've got it, then the moment they walk into an organization and they haven't got it, the first question is, I, I can't do my job without this. And that's what we're hearing from customers. So I think getting the new customers and making sure they're, they're getting, seeing the power from it, obviously that's, that, that's the sales activity. But in terms of where are those, those new valuable leads coming from, from new companies, major lead sources, people changing company. And again, we, oddly enough, we're spending time talking to recruit a, recruitment agents, not to not to move people around, but if people are sitting on the bench going, I'm about to go and get my next job, and I need to bring a, be able to talk about something in an interview or bring something new when I arrive at my new job, knowing about elements and walking in and going, you hired me, but by the way, I came with elements. Yeah, we, we're talking to the recruitment agencies about how can we build training courses to skill up the people who are sitting on the bench. So that's how we've operationalized that idea of when people arrive in a new company, they need elements. Nice. I like that. Yeah. And it's, I mean, when I get a new computer, I, I download Chrome. Like that's, that's job number one. And similarly, it sounds like that's what you're doing when, when folks change jobs there. And that, obviously that, that's the same as a consultant. A consultant is changing job every time they get a new client. And that's why we have an elements license for consultants so that, the moment they arrive at the client, they can connect it, two minutes to connect it, two hours later, they've got a view of the org. Yeah, it's this, this stuff isn't rocket science, but it takes a while to get a product to a point where it genuinely answers all the questions out of the box. And someone is confident enough that they are going to use their political capital, their personal capital to say, this product actually we need to use. And I don't think you should underestimate how much effort that takes in a B2B sales environment. B2C is easy. You build something and if someone loads it on their phone and they don't like it, nobody really cares. But if you're there saying to your employer, I think we should spend money on this product, that's actually quite a big commitment and it's quite a big responsibility. So the product you're building genuinely needs to work. So MVP is far broader scope for a B2B product than B2C. That's that's interesting to consider the the buyer side of that and the political capital they put on the line. I guess tell me a little uh, a little bit more about that and and how you operationalize that at Elements. Well, I, mean, I think the first thing, if you hire a consultant and the, the advice isn't very good, everyone sort of kind of forgets about it and you move on. You 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 persuade them to buy a product and then everyone in the company has to use the product every day and it doesn't work. They keep on going. Actually, it was Mike bought this in, isn't it? Oh. 
God, I wish you'd never done that. So there's this sort of, <laughs> this emotional thing, which is once you bought a product, it's in the company, then your your names and your fingerprints were on it, the decision that, that was made. So absolutely, you need to think about this from the buyer's perspective. And if your if your product is innovative, so it's not in competition with five or six other products, so you've you've got your own niche. So like Elements, there aren't very many products out like that out in the marketplace like Elements, a change intelligence platform product. When we go to a customer, they're not going, oh, fantastic, we're already planning to buy this. We've got, we want you to do a beauty parade. There are seven products. We've got the budget agreed. That's not our world. Our world is we come to somebody and they go, wow, where have you been all my life? I haven't got budget for this. I need to go and find the budget. And that's a very different buying cycle from I'm about to go and buy a backup product and there are four products I can choose uh, let's look at cost versus benefits. Let's get, put them in a line and work out who to choose. So this is all about market maturity. The market for what we've built isn't mature enough to have loads of products. It's not mature enough that, so people have put it in the budget. Roll the clock forward a year, two years, that will, be, that will be different. The market will have matured. People understand they need this thing. It will be in the budget. So I think if you're looking and if you think about marketing, they used to be called uh, called Cross in the Chasm. A guy called uh, Jeffrey Moore uh, wrote a book about sort of the different buying cultures. We are to the left of the chasm. Our buyers are evangelists, prepared to take a risk, see the business benefits, even though the product isn't 100% right. Uh, they have, all the training is not there. It's not the market leader because there's not a market. That's different from the buyer persona of an established product an established market where they are looking for the market leader. So you think about the DevOps marketplace. Five or six products, probably is the market leader by size. Salesforce has just entered the market with DevOps Center. In the next two, three years, we'll see how that market shakes out. But people are saying, I want DevOps. I now need to look at the marketplace. We've got budget for, for DevOps. Uh, we want to pick the market leader. We want to pick the most complete product. Procurement will get involved and say, I want to make sure that we are, we've got the best value for money. Who's the market leader? Let's go to the analysts and tell us who the best product is. That's, so we've got two very different buying personas based on the market. I'd suggest many of the people listening to this are people who found a, a bit of white space, something that they're going to build. It's innovative. You're looking to the left of the chasm, and there's a particular way of going to market. Go to dreaming events, write thought leadership, find evangelists. And I wrote a book a while ago called Why Killer Products Don't Sell. And we, we wrote an abridged version of it called Impact, which talks about how you sell and live to the left of the chasm. So if you go to elements.cloud slash impact, you can download the sort of the, the book summary. It's about 40 pages. But it gives you a sense of what it's like living to the left of the chasm, sell, selling to the evangelist. I Yes, I, I read that. I enjoyed that. Thank you for putting that out there and, and just sharing it with folks. I'll... I'll link to it in the in the show notes as well. And and uh, I guess just uh, advice for founders, just and you can take this any way you want, Ian. Any any sort of general advice, then any even specific around raising VC or not, bootstrapping or not, when to raise, how you how you went about that process, anything like that, I think could be really helpful. Well, that's a laundry list. Uh, okay, so let's let's pick a few things off. Number one, I think it's really hard being a sole founder. I'm very lucky that I've got two other guys I work with, Adrian King, Richard Parker, fantastic. We are very complementary skills. There's very little overlap. I've been with them 20 years. We finish each other's sentences. I trust them implicitly. 
it just works. So I think as a sole founder, it's hard. That's the first. Second thing you asked about money, the most expensive money you ever take is VC. The cheapest money you ever take is customer licenses. We built the last company, not Elements, the last company built for seven years out of cash. And that meant we had a, we still controlled a lot of it when, when it finally was acquired. But it also meant that we got to drive the company where we thought the company ought to be going. Not We weren't being driven by a VC who owned the ton of the company and were making decisions for us. And that that's quite refreshing to be able to have a strategy and, and have the time to focus on it. Next, this obviously with Element, we funded it ourselves. So we've actually got one investor, a big family fund who is thinks long-term, thinks in terms of generations, very supportive, and it actually makes it very easy to build a company the right way rather than making short-term decisions based on a, a VCs, the way they, the VC wants to operate. So that's the second thing. And the third thing in terms of advice is focus, focus, focus. You go, oh, we can build a product. Elements actually can support any application. We've architected it so you could use it for... I know, ServiceNow or Slack or managing all of the changes around, you know, NetSuite. But we focused on Salesforce and actually we focused on the Salesforce platform. So it's very easy to get dragged into different directions by going, oh, we could do that, or we could do that. The moment you keep focused, we go, our target market is a platform owner who spent three years, they've got a Salesforce org that's three years old, probably had a couple of consulting firms worked in it. That's our sweet spot. If we can solve for that problem, we've got 10, 20, 30,000 customers out. It makes everything easy. Marketing's easier because you're focused. Demand gen is easier, you're focused. Customer success is easy, you're focused. Product development is easy because you're focused. And uh, it takes a while, I think, as a new startup to really work out exactly where that sweet spot is. But the moment you find it, you've got to double down on that. And it, it it's not hard in terms of finding the business, it's hard walking away from the other things which you need to do to make sure you stay focused. Great advice. Thank you for that. Well, we're going to move into the final three here in rapid fire questions, 10 second answers. You ready to go? Yeah. Who is one company or person in the ecosystem that you track or follow? We're focused on Salesforce. So I think Salesforce is the company. Uh, they're moving so fast. Changes are happening so quickly. They're the one company we, uh, that we need to follow. We are dependent on the Salesforce platform. One guy who I think actually great sense of humor, really polished operator is Patrick Stokes. Uh, he's the EVP of platform. Awesome. And uh, way back in, in 99, what would you tell yourself day one of working in the ecosystem? Buy shares. <laughs> oh my uh and uh lastly what gives you the energy in your personal life uh this kind of stuff actually new stuff uh helping educate people from my experiences um I, I i just love training i've written books i write blogs if people say will you be on a podcast the answer is yeah of course um uh, i'm a big fan of sending the elevator down and uh we need to we need to grow the ecosystem and uh, we need to make sure people don't make the mistakes we did. So, yeah, this is what gives me energy is seeing people grow and, and hopefully sharing some of my advice and finding it's valuable. You and me both, Ian. Um, well, thank you so much for joining this podcast and uh, sharing with this audience and uh, definitely appreciate your time. Yay. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something from today's episode of How We Got There. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. I'll see you here next time. Thank you.